This episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast is brought to you by our Device Talks Tuesdays speaker series. Join us this Tuesday at 4 p.m. in a session sponsored by iMark. It's called What's Now and What's Next? Hybrid Approaches to Clinical Trial Oversight. We'll hit upon some of the topics, some of the questions in our opening keynote conversation with Eric Colliger of Hologic. For more information, go to devicetalks.com. All right, you ready for this? Ready. This is Tom Salemi. Welcome to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. It's great to have you here. Welcome back. If you're a returning listener, welcome to the first for the first time. If you're just finding us, either way, we have a great episode for you later on. I'll speak with Jeff Mervis of Boston Scientific. Early on, I get to connect with Eric Colliger of Hologic. Both will be bringing some uh, unique perspectives of their uh, long careers in medtech. A couple of great conversations. We're also going to hear from our friends at Flexan a little bit later. But first, I'd like to bring in my colleagues, my partners in podcasting, Chris Newmarker, executive editor of Life Sciences at Mass Device, and pharma editor, Brian Bunce. Chris Newmarker, how are you, sir? Good to be here, Tom. Here we are, man. We're here on Thursday. So happy Thursday. Thursday. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. It's good to have you on. And we have our pharma editor, Brian Buns. Brian, welcome. Good to be back. You've both been very, very busy with with the Pharma 50. I think we should just kind of roll into that because I know you're both still extremely busy. So, uh, Chris, this is number five on the New Marcus Newsmakers. Do you need me to cue any kind of sound at all? Any, Any requests from you? Still don't have a sound, man. Come on. I get plenty get of sound. Just I'm asking you to pick something. Want the typing sound? All right, we'll work. We'll get that for you. Here we go. All right, let's hit those new markers, newsmakers. Number five. All right. Number five. Well, number five, we'll let uh, Brian Bunce discuss this. We got our Pharma 50 out. It's like our big 100 that we do on a uh, mass device and medical design and outsourcing only half the size. Brian. <laughs> a big salvo, or the first salvo, I guess I should say, in our form of 50 roundup. So we have like a roundup of the top 50 companies by revenue. And then down the pike, we'll have also a roundup of best-selling drugs and like the best companies to work for in the pharma space. And then it's kind of overviews of the industry. So we're kicking it off and it goes into June, like in a four-wave kind of series. So what does the report look like? What will folks find? Well, if you go on a drug discovery and development, we've got an introduction article that, uh, that kind of talks about how the uh, industry is doing, you know, how it uh, got through the pandemic. And then that links to, to like a full directory that you can find on drug discovery and development where you can click through listings for all 50 companies. And we're listing, you know, revenue spend in 2020, R&D spend, employee numbers, the leadership, you know, summaries about, you know, the companies and what they do and how they've been doing. And so, you know, just just a ton of information and you know you'll be seeing more articles you know coming out on, on drug discovery and development in coming weeks off of this so just you know a lot of good stuff and we'll be stubbing a, a decent amount of this on a mass device as well so brian any uh, key takeaways and we've talked on the medtech side about how covid you know impacted elective surgeries and all that and well i think we'll keep talking about that but any uh, any covid related trends on the pharma side that you uh, picked up on on this well i think one trend parallel to to the COVID trend is that 
companies like Pfizer are kind of repositioning themselves as being more nimble. So you pointed out that Pfizer is not as high in the list as you would have thought. So like they're like coming in like at number nine in the list. So part of that is they got rid of a division called Upjohn last year. And then part of that strategy was to focus more on innovation. It's almost like Pfizer now is a collection of multiple biotechs in one company. And you're, you're seeing similar stuff out of Merck. So Merck is right now getting rid of a division called Organon or spinning that off, I should say. And then I think that's interesting because you have J&J, which also has developed a vaccine, which has not been as widely distributed at this point, but they have a dramatically different strategy. So they're still kind of keeping to that conglomerate kind of strategy. And it seems to be working for them overall. They have a high degree of blockbusters in the market now. They have like more than 10 that are selling more than a billion dollars, I believe. So it's, it's interesting kind of like seeing the different strategies like from a high level of some of the big guys like Merck and J&J and Pfizer. It's interesting. We've seen a similar trend in, in, in medtech in, in recent months as, as, as well. Like, I mean, we've seen like Zimmer Biomed is going to be spinning off their spine business, um, you know, or, you know, so for example. So, I mean, just like companies, it's almost like maybe like there's a trend. It's like, it's like uh, an aquarium where you get like fish gobbling up other fish and they're getting bigger and now... Then they eventually have children and you get like little fish again, you know, and like, I guess, I guess we're in the, the little fish, getting some more like little fish being created, I guess, in the aquarium right now. I want to go to this aquarium. This sounds like an awesome aquarium. Yeah. You got to watch it over 20 years. It all happens. You'll see the cycle. And, you know, it's, uh... I just you will see fish swimming, swimming circles. But what's interesting, I mean, we, we brought Brian, you brought Brian aboard last year to, to build out our, our websites in the pharma space. And I think we just wanted to sort of cover more territory but i think brian your coverage has really kind of brought information analysis that informs us on the medtech side of things as well it's not just a and we do that as well there's there's obviously chris are you seeing a lot of uh, interwoven trends and, and connections you mean in, inside the uh, the project that we've done here i would i mean i just say there was just some like just really interesting insights that we you know figured out along the way i mean it's it's i mean it's interesting brian like me as a, just an extremely strong, you know, med tech background. I mean, we work together at, you know, at UBM now, now in Forma. And I mean, it's, you know, as, as we learn about this space um, and, and, and Brian like really delves into this and writes, reports and writes all these stories. Um, I mean, it's, it's interesting to see stuff like, you know, the fact that, you know, the top of the list um, is, is a Chinese company, Sinopharm. So, you know, the largest pharma company in the world is, is in China, but, but at the same time, we can see that, you know, among the, the largest companies, like we're just seeing again, again, USA, USA, you know, so maybe there's a Chinese and two Swiss companies at the top, but, um, you know, the USA is very dominant. I, you know, I actually was struck by the amount of companies on the list that were based in Boston, uh, you know, so, Woo-hoo. so you're there, man. Yeah. Like a good, good, good route for Boston here. Yeah. You know, so. Brian, how, how do you like uh, the pharma side of things? You're, you're, as Chris said, you're, you've been a med tech guy. How do you like the switch? I like it. It's, it's a whole different focus. So it seems like in the pharma industry, I find myself focusing on different themes like disease, pathogenesis, and, and stuff like that. That was part of medtech, but it's more of a focus for for pharma. If you understand, like what causes a um, certain, say, inflammatory disorder. And I mean, going back to an earlier thing that I kind of touched on before, like you have you have companies like J and J making tons of money off of compounds or in, sorry, biologics that are meant to meant to reduce inflammation. So like one example is like the drug Stellara, which brought in like close to I think $10 billion last year. So I think their med tech business is growing faster than pharma, if I recall correctly. Mm -hmm. But in terms of just like raw numbers, like 
their former division brings in close to like $50 billion. I mean, I think it's projected to be 50 billion this year. So it's, it's interesting just like comparing the, the scope of the industry. Like there's just, I don't know, it's kind of hard to fathom just how big the industry is in terms of like billions of dollars of sales. And, and also the dynamic of the industry is quite a bit different from from the med tech in terms of like the patent kind of angle as well. Like so much focus on being able to maintain, extend like patents and IP in general, which is obviously important for med tech, but it, it seems like it's especially crucial for pharma. Yeah, no, absolutely right. A blockbuster drug is is much larger than a blockbuster device, that's for sure, <laughs> in terms of revenue generated. It says something that among these 50 companies that that we compiled, I mean, the total revenue in 2020, and this was, mind you, in the middle of a, of a terrible pandemic and, uh, and, and a resulting recession, there was $851 billion in, in revenue. I mean, just, just just a little bit of money there. I mean, just you know, the, there's <laughs> countries in the world that don't have budgets that are the, the size of the, uh, of the global, of the, of the largest 50 pharmaceutical companies in the world. There's a piece in The Economist came out recently is talking about how the industry is kind of transforming with COVID. So like, as you all know, Big Pharma didn't have the the best of reputations like a couple of years ago. Like it was widely criticized for not innovating fast enough for price gouging for, I don't know, they had surveys of the opioid crisis. Yeah, op- yeah that mean, too. Yeah. And they had surveys of the US public that ranked um, the pharma industry like right below like the, the cable industry in terms of how yeah. <laughs> how it was perceived in the US. So um, it, it seems like a lot of that has shifted. Like there's, as this piece in The Economist kind of describes, you have many people that now who view the industry favorably for the first time in a while. You have companies that are valued more for innovation and, and also kind of like kind of helping the U.S. have a sense of normalcy. You're like you had the guidance come out from CDC that kind of like pegs ha- being able to go inside, outside in some situations with mm-hmm. no mask on to the vaccine. So it's interesting how vital, I guess, the industry has become in our lives and in the past years. Yeah. Let's hope we can say, see a similar rebirth with, uh, with the media, with newspapers someday. <laughs> It'd be nice to climb out of the public opinion toilet. Uh, so the, <laughs> give us the name of the report again. And, and where the we the can report find it. is the Pharma 50. And you can find it in its extent on drug discovery and development. That's uh, drugdiscoverytrends.com. And you can also uh, you know, catch uh, mentions of it on our other life sciences sites, including mass devices, as well as like we're gonna we'll be out on LinkedIn, you know, Twitter talking about this as well. So check it out. I, I would also say, like, I mean, really just go to drug discuss drug, you know, like really like if you've any if you really want to take some good deep dives in what's going on with pharma, go to drugdiscoverytrends.com. I mean, you know, Brian doesn't want to praise himself too much, but I gotta say, like, I mean, he you know, he's been doing a lot of really well reported stories, like delving on what's going on with the uh, industry, including demystifying some of the stuff that you know people have been saying about potential uh, vaccine side effects as well. And it's been had a great effect on. Uh, it's a it's a site bringing in hundreds of thousands of page views a month now. I mean, I think that's testament to the fact that we're you know we're putting some valuable stuff out there. Let us move on to number four on New Market Newsmakers. Number four on the list. We've got another uh, serious recall um, involving uh, Medtronic's hardware uh, HVAD. Okay, and this, this time involves uh, manuals, instruction manuals. So they're, you know, recalling those because there's like, risks around reading of the manuals and like instructions related to what happens with, you know, the cases dropped, incorrect installation, misinterpretation of alarm signals. Um, interestingly, this isn't a new problem with H- HVADs or LVADs. I mean, gosh, wow. I mean, even I remember, I mean, Brian, even when we were back in Forma, we were, you know, writing about serious LVAD recalls in- involving uh, instructions that weren't 
properly being being read. I mean, I, I, I mean, it says something. It's a device that's helping to support pumping in the heart. And you know, if you don't have good instructions, that's that's not a good thing. Yes, not an IKEA project. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> not like the instructions for installing a home stereo system. <laughs> yeah, talk about the important writing. Wow, that's I actually hadn't. I wasn't aware of that uh, being an issue. But uh, oh, that's unfortunate. Yeah, it is unfortunate. But at least it sounds like Medtronic is uh, getting to the bottom of it. And their notice that went out on February 26th about this, you know, included an appendix updating the instructions for use and you know the the patient manual to address these issues. But uh, yeah, FDA just just this week declared at a, a class one level recall, which is its most serious level. Hey everyone, now it's time for our opening keynote conversation. I'm happy to be speaking with Eric Colige. He's the Corporate VP of Global Health and Quality and Regulatory Affairs at Hologic. He'll be sitting on a panel this Tuesday at 4 p.m. with Hamash Baird. He is with Remington Davis, Brandy Chittister, President of iMark, and Xavier Lefebvre. He is Global VP Medical and Regulatory Operations at Medtronic. They're going to talk about how clinical trials have changed during COVID-19 and, and how we're moving forward, what uh, new tech is being adopted, what new policy be being adopted. So it's going to be a great conversation. Eric will uh, hit upon just a few of those uh, questions here in this interview. But first, I want to introduce Mike Harris. Mike is a Vice President of Sales and Marketing at Flexan. Mike, tell us about Flexan. Flexan is a company that was uh, started 75 years ago as an industrial rubber molding company, and we've now emerged to a, uh, a global international uh, custom contract manufacturer in the polymer space, both operating in the rubber and silicone uh, manufacturing, as well as thermoplastic. And we're really happy to offer our customers uh, a true end-to-end -end solution for their custom contract manufacturing needs. And we uh, offer not only molding uh, and extrusion, but also sub-assembly, full device assembly, as well as full packaging needs for both uh, silicone and thermoplastics capabilities. And we, we have four manufacturing sites along, across the United States. Uh, the original Flexan site located in Chicago, uh, where it's just primarily industrial rubber molding. Our Lincolnshire, Illinois headquarters, we operate as our center of excellence for silicone molding. We have a class 7, 20,000 square foot clean room. Our site in Salt Lake City is our uh, thermoplastic center of excellence. So there we offer um, molding and, and extrusion as well as full device assembly and packaging uh, for th our thermoplastic customers. And then uh, in Suzhou, China, we have uh, a class seven clean room where we offer both silicone molding as well as full device assembly. And we also offer industrial molding out of that site. We have a proud history of, of being in the polymer space and we're really excited of the, the growth that we've experience with uh, working with our customers, and we look for a very bright future ahead. We'll hear more from Mike Hurst in the next episode of the Device Talks weekly podcast. Until then, if you'd like to find out more about Flexan, go to flexan.com. That's F-L-E-X-A-N.com. Well, Eric Kolajay, welcome to the podcast. No, thank you. Glad to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. I mean, you uh, have had a, a busy year. Everyone's had busy years and crazy years with, with all that's gone on. But Hologic has been uh, has been busy on a regulatory front, getting approvals for various tests. I want to sort of understand what this past year has been like. You had just joined the company in 2019. I want to understand about that transition as well. But uh, I'd like to, to start off these interviews just understanding a little bit about the person we're, we're talking to and how they found their way into the industry. What was uh, what was your path into, into MedTech? 
So my my background uh, is is largely uh, based on my family. All of my family is in is in uh, in medicine, right? My brother's an oncologist. My sister uh, is a pharmacist. My other sister is a nurse. Um, all of you worked in industry as well as in private practice. Um, I'm kind of the outlier, right? I'm a, I'm a scientist. I'm the, I'm the kind of doctor that can't help anybody, right? <laughs> so, you know, I, uh, I got into this thinking that I was going to uh, cure cancer, honestly. I mean, when I was at Purdue and did my PhD there, um, I thought that I was going to be the smartest kid on the block and going to cure cancer and, and go from there. Uh, what I realized is when I when I got out into industry, I started it in Searle, the Monsanto subsidiary, the pharmaceutical subsidiary Searle years ago and in research and realized that I was not the smartest kid on the block, you know, and I, I figured I needed to find a different path. And so I, I found my way and did a lot of different things, in fact, but found my way into uh, quality and regulatory over time and, and really had, to, you know, I think have got to see things that I never thought I'd ever get to see, right? So it's, uh, it's been an interesting ride. So how did you find your way in, into uh, regulatory, into managing clinical trials? I mean, was it a, obviously you had the scientific background, but are there, are there, what are the qualities you need to be drawn to quality assurance and in and, and clinical and regulatory matters? You know, I think the, the background in science is a foundation, right? But although I've seen a lot of people be very successful um, in in the quality and regulatory space, people who have created, uh, you know, a, a background in in being a good business partner, right? I mean, it's more than just the black and white. And it's, you know, it used to be very black and white in our space, right? But that has really evolved over time into being more of an options creator, right? Mm-hmm. And so quality and regulatory, the people who are most highly successful are options creator. And if you have the scientific background as well, you get a lot, you get a lot more leverage, right? So everything like, in, in this space is relational, right? It's the relationship with the agency, notified bodies, with the development guys, with the clinical guys, with the uh, principal investigators uh, that are out in the field. I mean, it's a relationship game. And, and so the people that are most successful in this space are, are, are highly relational. And so, you know, what I liked about it is, is exactly that. I mean, I didn't have to be the smartest kid on the block, mm-hmm. but, I had to, but I had to have the, uh, the relationships and uh, I realized that early that you had to have the relationships that got you to the point where you could be uh, successful in navigating some difficult issues, right? I mean, you know, some of these these questions are not scientifically clear, especially in the regulatory space, and and being able to work through them with you know with the regulators and with because they're they're scientists by nature, right? Um, in a way that is uh, is basically a win-win. I think is the uh, the key to the to being successful in this space. Um, and so I, uh, I, I follow that path. I mean, I, I actually was thrown in it, right? I mean, I was a quality, I, I did a quality, uh, job in pharma, did, mm-hmm. you know, leading, leading a pharma organization globally at, uh, at Perigo. And then I moved on to a quality organization at, at Roche and, um, and ran the quality organization for a while before I was thrown into the regulatory, leading the regulatory space for Roche, because we were, we were largely unsuccessful in bringing forward the, the class three devices that were so essential, you know, to being successful long-term. Dan O'Day at the time was the, the CEO of the diagnostic division and asked me to, to take on the, the challenge. And that's kind of where I, I made my bones in, in the medical device regulatory space. It's an interesting melding of a lot of experiences, right, across both 
R&D, quality, and then, uh, and then regulatory. And then ultimately, you know, you intersect with clinical. And so I think the most exciting pl- place is, is where the nexus between regulatory and clinical, right? I mean, that's where, that's where you can really make an impact for patients as well as for the business. And, and um, we, that's, that's the space that is the most exciting uh, for the future, I think. Well, you, you've picked a certain exciting uh, position at a company that's, as I mentioned at the top, had a, a lot of exciting activity over the past year. Uh, tell us a bit about, you, you joined Hologic in, in 2019. What, what was intriguing to you about this position? What led you to Hologic? So Hologic, one of the things I love about Hologic is the passion around women's health. And so mm-hmm. I, I come from, a, as I mentioned, my brother is an oncologist and my my uh, two sisters are both in the in the oncology related space, right? Um, so, and it was largely tied to the fact that our mother um, died of breast cancer, right? So we we have a tie in the space uh, that is personal, right? And so, you know, this was a position when when I left Roche, I honestly thought I was going to uh, go into teaching. You know, I was going to ease into ease into the the last uh, last segment of my uh, career. In, uh, in a teaching space. And then uh, and the guys at Hologic here called and said, hey, hey we, got, we got an opportunity for you that you can make a mark. And, uh, and so the connection was good because I, you know, there's passion around it. And even, even further, um, it's even more personal because my wife is a breast cancer survivor as well. So Hologic is a women's health, you know, really is a women's health passion company, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, we have products, but really what, we, what we're selling is passion, right? Around, you know, what we can do to um, make uh, women's lives better, right? And I think I, I, I totally bought into it, right? I mean, it's, it's not hard to buy into, you know, so with Steve's passion about it and, and, the, and the team here, I think that, uh, you know, it makes it a lot easier to, to jump in and, and, and do these things that we're, we're working on, right? I mean, you know, Hologic, Hologic had a lot, got a lot of, uh, a lot of praise this this year about all of the the COVID tests that we introduced, and rightfully so. I mean, we I think we just surpassed uh, a couple of weeks ago our hundred millionth uh, COVID test. Wow! So, yeah, I mean, it's it's an amazing thing. And people, you know, people ask, well, who the hell is Hologic, right? And and uh, Hologic, yeah, well, Hologic is the one of the world's largest suppliers of COVID tests, right? And uh, I think that 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 gave us a lot of uh, really good publicity but the reality is is that the other pieces of the business have also done well through this this time period and in particular things like surgical and and the imaging business have all done very well because we've remained highly engaged with both you know the the patient groups as well as you know the uh, the regulators and I, I think even the the hospital systems uh, so that we could we could bring bring these elective type procedures back much more quickly during the pandemic. And I think we've been pretty successful at doing that. So it's a, it's a, it's a nice package of things. If you're, if you're passionate in this space, I don't know of any company that has more passion around this area than, than Hologic. We're going to talk about this uh, in the uh, Device Talks Tuesday session coming up, but tell us about the the past year and, and how it impacted your job, your your management of clinical trials, seeking FDA approval. You, you've gotten a number of EUAs. When did things first start becoming different for you in a regulatory front, and, and, and how did you react to that? 
Yeah. So the first, the first thing that, you know, I think happened was, is the realization that our technology could make a difference, right? So the TMA technology, which is an adjacent technology to PCR, which we also do, we have PCR, you know, our fusion version of the Panther. We realized that we could really affect the climate out there in regards to bringing forward tests that could be used to help diagnose the, uh, the disease, right? And so I think that was the first thing it was like, oh man, we could, we could get these things through. Now, I will tell you that the one thing that's really been interesting in, in the early stages of the pandemic was the, uh, the way the agency responded to the need, right? I mean, you know, we can talk about Project Warp, warp Speed and all the other things with the vaccine, but the responsiveness of the FDA to, to work with sponsor companies to bring forward these tests. And if you look at the list, it's expansive, right? The number of people that have introduced EUAs to test for whether it's, you know, the you know, PCR-based test or antigen tests or whatever. Um, I think it's been amazing how they've responded. I mean, they, it, they redeployed so many assets, right? To help with getting these things through the pipeline so fast and literally engaged us on a, on a almost daily basis to move these things through the system. Um, I, it was something I've, something I've never seen in 25 years of doing this stuff. I mean, it, it was, it, you know, I think they mobilized in a way that I I've never seen. Now the downside to that is that everything else gets put to the side, right? So if you've got other things that you want to bring forward that have medical value, right. For patients, they get sidelined. Right. And so the agency is trying to rebalance now, but I think it's still going to take some time. So, you know, there's a number of other things besides COVID tests that we, you know, that we value, right. Hologic and I'm sure other, Mm -hmm. other companies do as well. They want to get through the system, but of course there's a big plug in there that's tied to the COVID tests. Right. And so I'm I'm in particular speaking about the, the OIR, right. The OIR piece, which is the diagnostics piece, but it, it plugs the pipeline, right? And so other things are, are much slower in getting through. And, and I think that is something that is going to have to be addressed soon because there are some medically significant tests that, that we're working on that we want, to, we want to bring forward, which are beyond just, you know, just the COVID tests. And so we, get, we can't forget that. I think there are other parts of the agency that have done, you know, that are, are much better. So the other, the other um, parts of Shuren's organization that are, are not tied to diagnostics have been much more aggressive in, in addressing some of the pieces that we want to bring forward. Uh, and I think that that, that works well for uh, both us and for patients. So with the, with the FDA uh, focused to, to a great degree on, on COVID tests and, and the slowdown in other areas, how did you at Hologic respond? Do you, do you forge ahead with clinical trials you really can't stop those and and kind of pick them up again do you do you how did you manage that and and with the the concerns about travel and distance and 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 social distancing how did you continue to move forward with with those trials so a couple of things that we did right so the first thing was is that realizing that many of the clinical trials that are going on are going to slow right so naturally the enrollment in many clinical trials during the pandemic basically went to zero, right? So both the, the principal investigators, as well as people who might be you know, enrolling in these things, they didn't come in, they didn't come in, right? They were reluctant to, to come into an environment that, that could potentially uh, get them infected with the virus, 
right? So, so what happened was, is that while we continued those, we looked for other options to continue the clinical trials or to introduce new trials that were uh, done in an alternate way. And what I'm specifically talking about are like real-world evidence, right? The use of actually curated data that's out there. You know, this is clinical data that may be acquired in Europe or historical data that had been gathered through LDTs or or in other ways in, in the surgical space for procedures that were done maybe off-label, but data was recorded uh, in, in, in databases, uh, in, in IDNs, or in hospital systems that could be curated and brought forward to either extend claims or introduce new claims. So what we did was we pivoted toward you know, looking at how we could use real-world evidence in the clinical space to supplement what we had already, or to introduce new uh, new type claims. And so some of those we're, we're going to try to bring to fruition here soon and with submission. Uh, and uh, they're, they're almost exclusively based on real-world evidence that we work with partners that are, that are out there, companies that are out there that do this, this data, uh, data aggregation and curation. And they're very good at, at, uh, at doing this with healthcare data. Uh, and, and it is uh, a foundation for how we believe uh, the future of regulatory submissions, i.e. the clinical portion, the clinical validation portion, will, will occur. I think that the, the future of uh, the regulatory space will be dominated by not, pros- not so many prospective trials. It'll be the combination of some truncated prospective trial with real-world hmm. evidence that's out there. And then what is you'll see you'll see a shortening of time because one of the things that the the agency realizes uh, and and of course industry does is that it takes so long to get a clinical trial to completion right I mean it's years if you want to do a longitudinal study it takes years to get the data you need to uh, and thousands of patients perhaps even to get to to the point where you have statistically significant data however, if there's data that's curated out there, you know, that, that these companies uh, have aggregated or even the IDNs have ag- aggregated and you can access it and, and query it, it can be a very powerful tool to supplement or um, supplant a prospective trial. And I think, you know, the FDA and the final thing I'd say is the FDA is welcoming this right there. You know, they back in 2017, they came out with the real world evidence guidance and, and that's been like the, the, the first foray into this space for the regulators. But you see, uh, you know, Jeff Sharon and others talking about, you know, how they, they're embracing the use of real-world evidence um, for um, a number of different applications, including fully new submissions. And I think they, will, they are welcoming these type of, of submissions, at least in conversations that we've had with them, they they certainly are welcoming the, the approach. So they see the benefit in speed and in getting, you know, innovative therapeutics and or tests and or procedures to, uh, you know, patients faster. And I think that's the, that's the reality. Um, it's, a, it's a cool time. I mean, it's a really, a, it's, it's a totally cool time to, uh, to be in the regulatory science space. That's for sure. Where does that real world evidence come from? Generally, and and was this a transition that was happening anyway? And like in many other spaces, uh, COVID just sort of the pandemic just accelerated it? Yeah, I think the pandemic, what happened with the pandemic was people realized, 
hey, I, I can't enroll patients. Where am I going to get data to continue these? You know, so they started looking for alternate sources. You know, everyone, everyone thinks, oh, I'll just, I'll just get 30 more sites and enroll people at 30 more sites. Okay, yeah, that's a, that's a strategy. It, and, and, you, and it could work, right? But the alternative is, it, has there been data acquired in Europe, in Asia, or other places, or, or even as an investigator-initiated study somewhere, that may have had some consented and outcome data that we could query that could then be the basis of, uh, of a submission. And I think the answer is yes. Now, where does the data come from? You know, if you think about every health record that's out there, so that's mm-hmm. clinical data, right? If you think about real world data, you think about the, the, the space that you have health records, okay, that's data. Real world evidence is really the clinical evidence associated with you know, outcomes, right? Uh, treatments, things like that. Um, it's there. It's owned normally. You know, I, the interesting part of this is mm-hmm. who owns that data, right? I mean, I, some people would say the data is owned by the patient. I That could be true. But I think there are hospital systems that, that believe that they own the data, right? In fact, it's becoming a currency, right? It's becoming a currency where, you know, there are big health systems that are selling their data sets. And I mean, for big money. I don't mean like, you know, small potatoes. I mean, this is big, this is big time stuff. And then there's companies out there like, you know, Flatiron and Omwan and others who are data aggregators. And what they do is go out and contract the, uh, these healthcare systems to access the data, right? And so, again, it's a financial transaction for them. But what they do is they have scientists that can aggregate and build comparator arms and and these kind of things that are useful for you know sponsor companies who want to uh, to use the data f- you know in a meaningful way for a submission. This is this is clearly the future. I mean it's you know everyone used to talk about big data and this is the this is one of the the avenues of big data that will I think will benefit patients uh, via speed, right? It's really about speed. So it's a it's a cool it's a cool application it, and it's and it's coming in a big way I think you know we we are you know I would say we are looking for every possible application of use of real world evidence that we can find right because again it cuts the prospective trial mm-hmm. down potentially and and it brings products to market faster and then of course with with the FDA welcoming the approach I mean that only helps right I mean so you know, if this is something that they they believe in, let, let's get on board. I mean, <laughs> what about the uh, well, we're going to be talking about hybrid approaches to, to clinical trial oversight using technology and other ways to, to sort of is this all part of that? Uh, or are there are are there other ways to to run a clinical trial where you're employing remote technologies? And oh, sure. All, all the above. Right. I mean, I, yeah. You know, I think it, you know this isn't a this isn't a unique singular strategy. I mean, there's multiple multiple ways to do it. I mean, with the advent of a lot of these remote sensing devices and things like this, I mean, clinical trial science will 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 change, right? I mean, you implantable devices, wearable devices, all these things will change how trials are done. I mean, there's super interesting, cool stuff out there about like Alzheimer's disease uh, and and uh, measuring the gait of, of those of those folks who are taking a specific drug therapeutic regimen where they measure the gait using a app on a iPhone. Super cool, right? I mean, and and they and what they're doing is measuring the effectiveness of the treatment, right? I mean, it's it, it, this stuff is super cool. You, I mean, it's you know space age, right? This is jet. <laughs> 
I mean, you know, I, I, I find it fascinating that people think of these uh, these options, but it's all of those above. It's it's almost limitless what people are creating now as a result, not just as a result of the of the pandemic, but you know, I think the pandemic has accelerated people's thinking on, hey, how can I do this when people aren't showing up in uh, in hospitals to uh, participate in these trials? Great point. And final question: What what happens now for, with those uh, EUAs that were were given out? Is there uh, what what is the effort like to go back and, and and confirm approval? Is that going on at all? How, how do things? Where do we go from here in that regard? Yeah. So, well, we saw the first uh, the first de novo five ten k. It was uh, bio. It was in March, I think. Biofire came forward with their their RP two five ten k de novo five ten k, and it got cleared. So they've they've kind of They've kind of paved the way, right? So if you think about, you know, what they what they need to do. In fact, they only used 500 samples to get clearance, which was amazing to me. But they did the work to bring the first one forward, and I think, you know, the expectation of the agency is is that all of us that have put EUAs into the marketplace are going to bring forward a, a 510k at some point. Now, if you don't, I mean, it, you know, the agency won't pull the plug on the EUAs, and you know, for a while, I think. I mean, and they, you know, traditionally, I think their approach would be is, okay, we have a number of 510Ks that are, are cleared now, you know, in a, you have another year or so to get yours cleared, and then we're going to clear the decks. So it's going to be something like that, right? Um, as soon as there are more people that go through the process. But I mm-hmm. think the expectation was, is that, you know, when, when you file the EUA, you know, you have these tr- the truncated set of requirements, right? I mean, it's n- nowhere near as rigorous as, let's say, filing a 510K, and certainly not as rigorous as a PMA. But it's it was uh, it was a simpler pathway to get get the product in the hands of the people who needed it. I mean, that's what it's for. Now, the expectation was you're going to bring you're going to bring forward a 510K at some point, and I think all of the all the companies that have the wherewithal to do it will likely do it. Some of the smaller ones that introduce EUAs won't. And the reason why is it, you know, it's a commitment, right? I mean, it's a commitment to do all the testing, the specificity, selectivity, all the, you know, the stability testing, all these things that you need to do for the 510K. Plus, you have to have a, you have to have a, fi- a, a GMP quality system that is reviewable, right? And I don't want to speak ill of some of the ones that are brought brought forward tests because it, it needed, we were, it was needed everywhere. But I don't know that all, all the people will make the investment to bring forward the 510Ks. And so they'll they'll fall away, right? The, some will fall away. But you know, I, I think, you know, it makes sense to do it because this is an ongoing thing. What I think you'll see, Tom, is in the in the molecular space, the real, the real answer will be multiplex tests, right? For the future, it won't be individual, you know, tests like, you know, oh, I have a, I have a COVID PCR test, okay, or, or, or for us like a TMA test. The answer is really bringing forward like a, a panel, right? Mm-hmm. Something that, something that you can include flu, RSV, and the COVID test, because, you know, when, when we go to through the next season, you know. The, the physicians are going to want to be able to discriminate between does this person have the flu or is it COVID, right? Mm-hmm. And I think you, you see some of that. I mean, there have been a few introduced into the market already, some of these multiplex. And I think that that's the future of this type of testing. It's not going to be the individualist tests that, that you see out there because, heck, if you could, and, and even further at the point of care, I mean, I think you know, you'll see you'll see point of care testing for all these kind of things. So you'll see these uh, these tests being able to be done in CVS and you know 
all over the place where you can go in and get, you know, get that test quickly and, and know whether you have the flu or something. You don't even have to go to the doctor's office. So I think that, that that's coming as well. But the future is, yes, the, the EUAs, many will go to go through a 510K de, no, you know, de novo pathway like BioFire did. And I do think that many, many will move further beyond that to a multiplex test, which is much more valuable to physicians. Excellent. All right. Well, I'm glad to hear that this is an, an exciting time uh, for, for for clinical trials, for regulatory approval, and uh, I'm looking forward to our conversation on Tuesday to, to explore some of these these changes more. Thanks, uh, Eric, for uh, for joining us on the podcast. My, my pleasure. Anytime. All right, Chris, what's number three on Newmarket's Newsmakers? Number three on the list, uh, you know, cue the Gershwin music. We've got Abbott partnering with uh, United for use of Abbott's like speedy home COVID tests for international travelers to use to get back into the United States. So I, I, I and, muted during my lap, the Gershwin music. <laughs> <laughs> Do I have to look that up now? Do you need that sound? Anyway, so well, it's a good, it's certainly a good partnership. I guess we'll be seeing a lot more of this uh, going forward, getting these kits into the right hands, so we can keep tabs on things. Yeah, things are just like ever so slowly uh, opening up, so we'll uh, we'll see what, including more travel. So we'll see how it goes. So, all right, so you ready for number two? I'm googling Gershwin music. All right, what is number two on the new markers newsmakers list, Chris? Number two on the list is we've got uh, Zimmer Biomet. This was a story that I caught on to last week uh, with uh, Zimmer Biomet's uh, earnings call. And uh, it was actually after, after we talked for this podcast, but, you know, what's going on is uh, like their uh, CEO, Brian Hansen, was, you know, explaining that they're expanding their relationship with the startup Canary Health and that, they, you know, they're do- doing, I mean, there's always some excitement in the ortho space about Zimmer Biomet um, rolling out a smart knee implant later this year. And, you know, they're, uh, they're now looking to work with Canary on potentially hip implants, potentially shoulder implants. So, I mean, you know, Hansen was saying that really like uh, any kind of implant they're doing, there could be a potential to put a sensor in there. So it's just, it's just interesting to see Zimmer Biomed. They're just really pushing forward with this idea that, you know, having sensors inside ortho implants and, you know, gaining um, insights about the people with these implants uh, could, could really make a difference, could really, you know, move the needle in, uh, in the ortho device space. It seems like the idea of like smart implants has been around for a long time and I've not really followed it closely, but I'm wondering how mainstream are they now? Because I heard about the idea to use them in the past for monitoring wear, but it sounds like this is also like broader than that. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, there's been talk about, you know, sensors with implants for a long time, but you know, it's, it's, it's still not been widely adopted and really in the ortho space. I mean, this will like this, uh, this launch of this Persona IQ from Zimmer Biomet expected later this year, this is going to be the first smart knee implant, the fact that you'll have a knee implant with a sensor in, inside of it that's going to be just broadcasting information about about how that implant is working to a uh, transmitter inside of your house uh, so and, and that, that your health provider can then review. I mean, that's pretty different level. I do think the infrastructure is built, being built around it too with digital surgery with all the information coming from that. Yeah. I, think, I think data info is going to be essential and, and it feels as if in a few years we're going to have a lot more data. Well, I know in a few years we're going to have a lot more data than we have now. And they're making a big push right now with Medicare to get you know reimbursement around this too. So you know if the you know if the docs can get paid to follow the information, then wow, now all of a sudden you've got uh, some real you could be really making a difference here. Speaking of sensors, I did get my air tags, Chris. So my wallet is now uh, 
is equipped with an air tag. So I, wow. I shan't lose that. Right. I'm waiting for the keychains though, so I can put my keys on my air tag. So uh, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. I can't, <laughs> you know, like the amount of times I have to look for keys, like it just gets, gets worse every year. Tom. I know. <laughs> Don't tell me. All right, Chris, bring us to number one on the new markers newsmakers list. Number one on the list was just some uh, really great news for uh, Shockwave Medical when they came out with their uh, first quarter results. Their stock was, you know, when they, when they released the results, uh, went up uh, 21%. And, you know, the, this uh, Shockwave has like a proprietary cardiovascular disease treatment tech that involves local delivery of sonic pressure. And uh, they're saying they're looking to roughly triple their revenue to like to potentially over $200 million this year. So like just some exciting news in the cardio space. That's fantastic. All right. Yeah. Well, that's a- right, ending that with some good news. All right, now it's time for our closing keynote conversation. I'd like to bring in Jeff Mervis. Jeff is the Executive Vice President and President of Peripheral Interventions at Boston Scientific. I haven't had the chance to speak with Jeff before, so I really appreciated this uh, opportunity to talk. Got a lot of great points on where this area is headed, and we talked a bit about where Boston Scientific has been. Let's listen. Well, Jeff Mervis, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Tom. Great to be with you on the Device Talks cast. <laughs> it's a it's a star-studded cast. We have many, yeah. many great stars, and I'm happy to have your uh, your picture up on our vir- virtual restaurant wall, so to speak, uh, at the Device Talks, and, and hopefully we'll, we'll have you uh, actually up on a stage someday soon when we all get back into in-person meetings. But you've... Other than all that's going on on a global scale, you've had a very busy time at, at Boston Scientific. You had a, took over a new position last February. You have sort of a new division within the company thanks to the acquisition of BTG. So I want to follow up on all of that. But let's go way back uh, to your origins when you first uh, started in MedTech. You you started at Boston Scientific around the same time I started covering MedTech. Uh, I started in 98. You started in 97. What what brought you to the MedTech industry? Yeah. So, you know, I actually started in the pharma business back in oh. the late 80s. I was a, a Merck rep uh, schlepping the very first statin. And so my <laughs> Was it that job, heavy, Jeff? Was there a lot of schlepping? Yeah, <laughs> it was. It was a lot of schlepping. And uh, I'll tell you, you know, back in that in those days, you know, I'm, I'm an old guy. Uh, back in those days, you know, we were educating docs about the importance of treating cholesterol and sort of explaining what the difference was between good cholesterol and bad cholesterol. And, uh, you know, all all four of my grandparents actually died of heart disease. That's what sort of got me interested in the healthcare business. And so I was a rep for about four or five years. And then in the early 90s, I went into a a small little startup called Angion Medical Products. Hmm. This was before stents in this country. And we had a a variety of products for the cath lab, for, for IR suite. And went with Schneider, which was a division of Pfizer at the time. This was probably mid 90s. And right around that time, Boston Scientific bought Schneider. That's when Pfizer was divesting all of their medical device companies. Okay. And that's actually how I got to Boston Scientific. I spent most of my career in uh, marketing and interventional cardiology with some time in uh, the the, uh, rhythm management business. And then about 10 years ago, got back into the peripheral game here at Boston Scientific. Wow. So going way, way back, did you go to school to be an MD or anything like that? Were you that interested in the clinical side or? (laughs) Yeah, no, I was was a business guy. I was a marketing marketing major and uh, then got an MBA in management. And, you know, when I did those Myers-Briggs tests and everything. Yeah. Pointed me towards hospital administration. (laughs) I liked business and I liked healthcare. 
But, you know, being an administrator, you know, no offense to those of you I don't know. that are administrators, you know, it just, it wasn't my gig. So getting into, uh, into the business side of healthcare and, you know, I've loved it. It's just, uh, it's great because you feel so connected to the, the bigger mission of helping patients. And so it's been a wild ride. You've seen a lot of innovation and a lot of change in med tech over the last three plus decades. We really have. I mean, you mentioned that where we were in the 90s and where we are, and we all know there are advances. We all know there's many more products, but you don't realize how far we've come over that time and, and how much more there is that can be done today than there was just a decade or two ago. It's really remarkable. Yeah, it just makes me so optimistic about the future. Yeah. You know, when you think about where we were as an industry, as well as the diseases that we treat and just how far we've come in a couple of short decades, you know, you take a look at something like the death rate from cardiovascular disease um, and how it's declined over the last couple of decades. And you think about the next couple of decades and all these uh, diseases that, you know, really impact patients' lives, uh, both from a morbidity and mortality standpoint, just gives me such great optimism about the, the future of medical technology and its role in helping patients and also taking costs out of the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. So I think the future is very bright. Do you think people inside or outside the industry, and this is kind of a, a philosophical question or a broader question, do you think we realize that? Do you think people know how much better off we have it than we had it even just two decades ago? I don't. Uh, yeah. It's one of the reasons why I'm such a big advocate for the field, um, you know, being a part of organizations like Advamed and Medical Alley so that we can get our story out there. And you just think about the impact that medical technology has had during this last year, year and a half with COVID. Obviously, we know the story about vaccines, but you know, then there's diagnostics, all the products that went into helping patients who are in the hospital, patients on ventilators, and just the role that medical technology played in keeping patients healthy and safe and out of the hospital. I think it's just a remarkable contribution to society. And I really hope it's sort of a nidus for real positive change in the future to keep this wonderful industry thriving. I wonder if we'll ever get an account of the toll that people who didn't go have procedures done because of COVID. If we'll get a sense of what impact that had on people's health or or lives. It's a It's going to be telling in a couple of years, I think. Yeah, I think, you know, at least in our business, a lot of these procedures that are referred to as elective, it sort of makes it come across as if it's like optional and you don't really have to do it. But that's not the case. Right. You know, these procedures are needed and patients are suffering. And eventually, you know, they'll come into the to the healthcare system and get the appropriate treatment that they need, as well as diagnostics, even sure. simple things like colonoscopies and MRIs and mammograms, things like that. You know, I'm, I'm confident that the patients will get the care they need eventually. So let's talk a bit about your your path at Boston Scientific. You've been there since since 97. Uh, that's in my head. That's 24 years. You're coming up on, on 25 that right? That's right. Uh, <laughs> did you see yourself as a one company guy going in? Did you really want to commit yourself? I'm just curious if you're, if that kind of career is something that others can follow, or if you saw yourself as sort of an outlier staying with the one company, uh, I have to, it's not unusual, but, but you do see people usually jump at least once or twice. What kept you, what kept you there? And, and how did you find new ways to challenge yourself? 
Yeah, well, the, what, what kept me at Boston Scientific for so long is the team. We just, you know, I know every company thinks they have great people, and, and they do. But the team at Boston Scientific, I feel, is really special. And it's what's kept me and a lot of us so motivated to contribute uh, to this company for so long. And I was not intending on staying at Boston mm-hmm. Scientific for this long. In fact, my original vision for myself was to go get the big company experience and then go into small companies and you know run run startups and do a couple a couple of startups and then hopefully sell one uh, to Boston Scientific <laughs> and go sit on a beach and drink uh, drink a cocktail with an umbrella in it. <laughs> you know that's that's not obviously how it played out. And as I mentioned, it it really has to do with with the great people and the and the technologies and products that we're able to work on. You know, when you look back at the company's history over a little over forty years, you know, at least since I've been around, we've had a couple of different eras. Yeah, of growth in leadership. I had the opportunity to help lead the introduction of our coronary drug eluting stent back in the sort of 2003-2004 timeframe. I was head of commercial marketing for the interventional cardiology business. And, you know, that was an era of transformation and growth of the company. And then after we acquired Guidant, we went through a series of you know, of stumbles and some some difficult times. And that was a totally different challenge of dealing with integrating a big acquisition and, mm-hmm. you know, some some quality problems that we had as a result. And just, you know, sort of, it was sort of like a turnaround. And, you know, our market cap went to something like five or six billion. And it was a very, very challenging era. And then Mike Mahoney came in about 10 years ago and I had the opportunity to be a part of the executive committee and help to lead the turnaround of, of Boston Scientific over the last eight, 10 years. And um, a return to growth, uh, investment in organic R&D, obviously some uh, inorganic growth with M&A, globalization with investments in the emerging markets. And um, you, know, you turn around a decade later, our market cap is something over 60 billion. Mm-hmm. And it's been quite a, quite a turnaround. So. I sort of wrote it up, <laughs> wrote scientific <the laughs> down, and then back up again. So um, fully intend not to have another down period, but it's been a lot of fun. You don't, you don't seem to be on track for that. And I appreciate you bringing all that up and mentioning it. I was going to actually ask about Guide, and I remember, I think it was at a Cleveland Clinic conference, uh, one of their innovation conferences, and Jim Tobin was, gave the keynote. This would have been a year or two after the acquisition. He kind of laid out the case for the Guidant acquisition, and it was it was a really bold acquisition. Uh, you're right; it did create some some stumbles. But at the end of the day, I mean, what I guess what did you learn from it? What did the organization learn from it? And can we can we say it it worked out well because of where Boston Scientific na- is now? Or how would I guess what great not to put you on the spot, I guess I am though. But what grade would you sort of give that acquisition? Yeah, I'd say two things. I think that you know any acquisition needs to be judged over a length of time, and just like with any other investment, you look at it over multiple years and over the long run. And sometimes in the short run, it doesn't look so good. And clearly, the guidance acquisition was a, a difficult a difficult challenge for the company to um, to overcome. But I think at the end of the day, you know, we are where we are and it's part of our history. And there's been a lot of good that that's come of it. Uh, It was it was a challenging period. But nonetheless, I think when you look back, 
We wouldn't be where we are without those struggles. I think it made us uh, a better company. And then, you know, the second thing is uh, it's all about the people. Again, it's about the talent. And usually when I've seen companies struggle, it's less about the strategy and more about the execution Mm -hmm. uh, and the tactics and and the quality of that execution. And so, you know, at the end of the day, everything begins and ends with having a really, you know, high quality, diverse team working together towards a common mission. And I think that's what ended up happening here, even though, as you know, we've acknowledged it, it it was a bumpy road. At the end of the day, the team pulled together and and the company is where it is in large part because of that experience. That's great. Now, and that's, uh, there were two, they, they are and were and are now, there were two companies with great cultures and now one company with great culture. So, it, so it's clearly worked in a positive way. I want to talk about a bit about your division in a moment, but you, you mentioned Mike Mahoney coming on board in the past 10 years or so where, where you've, you've folks have more than hit your stride and they're doing extraordinarily well. What, can you sum up sort of what the difference was? What, what, or if you were to go, if and when you go and lead that company someday, what lessons do you sort of take away from the execution over the past decade under Mike Mahoney? Well, I think the first thing is uh, he coined a phrase, uh, winning spirit. And, you know, at the time, you know, every company's got their words on the wall and their cultural values and things like that. But this was something that, you know, he put his personal stamp on. And what he saw when he got to Boston Scientific, I believe, mm-hmm. um, is one person's sort of view on, on what what I think played out in his mind was that we had been through a challenging period and we lost a little bit of our uh, mojo and, and that showed. And so what he did is he got us back on the balls of our feet. He helped us build confidence again that we can win. He pointed us in, in a direction of globalizing, you know, the company was largely U S based. So we really looked uh, to be more global we did a few deals that worked out to be successful. And it, it sort of was like this flywheel concept, you know, that you read about like the Jim Collins sort of good to great flywheel yep. where, you know, one thing leads to another and it just, it sort of works and it works and it keeps going and it's, it accelerates. And I, I link it all back to that mindset that he really kept instilling upon us about just a winning spirit. And when we faced barriers in the way, he'd ask, you know, how are we going to get around the barrier? Mm-hmm. Let's not let's not focus on it. Let's figure out how to get around it. You know, when we talked about, well, the way we did it is blah, blah, blah. He'd say, Let, let's talk about the way we're going to do it. Mm-hmm. And he really, um, you know, he really, I think, instilled a much greater sense of winning spirit. And I think that was sort of the catalyst by which things were able to sort of get in that flywheel mechanism. That's great. Yeah, no, I've never been a big fan of, of slogans and things like that, but there are people who are so authentic in the way they share it that you you can't help but believe and, and see the value and from it and get energy from it. But uh, that's great. So let's talk about your winning. You, you guys are doing well on the in your your peripheral business. I was just looking at the financial results. The quarter ended in March thirty first. You're actually ten percent over where you were in uh, the year before. So here we are, sort of uh, at a period where COVID was still maybe waning, but it was certainly still a factor of life. And you guys had a better quarter than you did before the pandemic even started. So talk to me a bit about your the business you're leading 
And uh, yeah, let's go for an overview of the business you're leading. And then we can kind of talk about what's driving this, this growth. Yeah. So depending on which company you'd be talking to, they might define peripheral a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. Every company sort of has their slant on it because, you know, technically speaking, I think most people look at it as anything outside the heart. Uh, can be, you know, can be viewed as periphery. peripheral, yeah, peripheral <laughs> vascular is sort of like anything out the, outside the heart. And that's a lot of highways of arteries and veins yeah. uh, to either open up or close down. And so that's how we think about it is uh, we have decided to focus in three different areas of Boston Scientific Peripheral. The first is in arterial, mostly peripheral arterial disease. So blockages in the leg. The second area is venous interventions. So that's where patients have a blood clot or some sort of blockage in the deep venous system or in their pulmonary uh, arteries for you know pul pulmonary embolism. That's our second area of focus. And then the third area is interventional oncology, which is sort of a, a focus area of the interventional radiologist to treat patients with cancer, you know, primarily liver cancer, but the IRs treat, you know, other forms of cancer like in the kidney or the lung or bone. And we have a portfolio to help the IR treat cancer. So that's how we sort of think about it. So PAD, uh, venous and interventional oncology. And, and talk a bit about the acquisition of BD, BTG. BTG. Sorry, I don't know why I'm having trouble saying three letters. What did that bring into, into your business and, and how did it change uh, the, the, the group you're running now? So our overall strategy at the company is you know, what we call category leadership. And so we focus on a customer and um, a set of diseases, you know, three of which I just rattled off for a peripheral. Mm -hmm. And our goal is to you know, stay as close as we can to that customer and go deep with the disease states that that customer treats. And so what the BTG acquisition did for us is it helped us expand our category leadership position in two of the three areas, in interventional oncology, where BTG had uh, several devices used to treat cancer. And prior to the acquisition, we had sort of all the enabling tools and technologies. But when it came time to actually treat the cancer, mm -hmm. we didn't really have any treatment devices. We had all the sort of other tools in the toolbox. And so what this allowed us to do is now have the complete solution of sort of the whole toolkit for the IR, everything from you know wires to catheters to coils, drainage catheters, everything. And then now the, the therapies like Y90, which is a radio embolization product that's uh, sort of internal radiation or ablation systems, et cetera. So that's sort of the oncology piece. And then it's the same story in the venous interventions mm -hmm. where we had a number of devices, uh, you know, balloons and stents and catheters and wires. And the BTG acquisition had a couple of other products that we're able now to link together and sort of be the one-stop shop, if you will, for venous interventions, everything from, you know, superficial venous uh, disease like varicose veins to uh, deep system blood clots like a deep vein thrombosis, all the way to devices that are used to treat pulmonary embolism. And so, you know, again, we sort of have all the tools in the toolkit 
to help patients with venous disorders. Was was Therosphere the is that this is that the Y9 that you talked about and that was a BD, BTG property? Correct. So Therosphere is a glass radial embolization product that's used to treat patients with primary liver cancer or HCC. And it's actually the only Y90 that's now FDA approved for the treatment of uh, primary liver cancer. And that just, you just received full FDA approval for that this quarter, right? Or, or this year? Yeah. yeah. The first quarter of this yeah, year. Yeah, just like a month or two ago, we, we received the, the full FDA PMA approval. It was, a, it was a long time in the making. We had humanitarian device uh, mm-hmm. exemption approval. So the device has been used for a good number of years. And we did a trial called the Legacy Trial, which showed excellent results. You know, we filed with FDA and got approval just a couple of months ago. So I think it was a great example of some of the, you know, the complementary nature of this acquisition of, you know, they had a lot of the works in progress. We mm-hmm. were able to sort of take our capabilities at Boston Scientific and bring it to bear to accelerate the timeline to gain approval uh, from FDA. What, what stage were those trials at when you acquired the company? Were they underway, the legacy trials, or did you did Boston Scientific do the whole yeah, trial? Yeah, the legacy trial was in follow-up when we, when we acquired BCG. Okay. So you had an indication. You, you, did you have an indication that it would get full approval? Yeah. I mean, that was our hope. When we did the due yeah, diligence, you, you know, you just, never, you just never know. And so, you know, sort of job one for Therosphere when we did the acquisition was to dig in and, you know, get the filing uh, done and accelerate uh, the timeline to, to get to a, a approval. And, you know, our goal is to bring this therapy to more and more patients around the world because we've shown that with the personalized approach to Therosphere, we can actually mm-hmm. extend life for patients with uh, primary liver cancer when you look at Therosphere used in a personalized dosimetry versus a standard uh, dosimetry. And so, you know, we're just optimistic about the opportunity for this therapy to, to help patients live live longer, which is really gratifying. And you had another FDA approval. Well, I'm sure you had more than two, but the fourth quarter of 2020, you had FDA approval for uh, Ranger drug-coated balloon. What's the significance of, of that approval? We've had a number of real positive regulatory approvals over the last six months or so. Uh, Ranger uh, drug-coated balloon in the U.S. and then in Japan in March. And so, you know, we've been working on this product for about 10 years. And actually, we've been working on paclitaxel, which is the drug that's on the Ranger DCB. We've been working on that drug device combination since the mid 1990s. Yeah. So it's been 25 years of pharmaceutical science come to bear in this latest approval. We've had, you know, reams and reams of preclinical data, devices used in, you know, thousands of patients in randomized clinical trials with paclitaxel in arteries, whether they be coronary or peripheral arteries. And so what this does for us, most importantly, is helps us in, in terms of being the only company in peripheral that has a stated, state-of-the-art drug-eluting stent or PAD mm-hmm. and uh, a state-of-the-art drug-coated balloon. So we can then go into our hospitals and uh, partner with our customers to really provide them sort of whatever they think is best for their patient. We're sort of uniquely positioned in that whatever they want to do for that patient, 
whether it's atherectomy or a drug-eluting stent or drug-coated balloon or a bear stent or a bear balloon, we have the tool to support them. And that puts us in a unique position. And so that approval of the ranger that you mentioned was sort of the capstone of a strategy that's frankly been in development for about a decade to really sort of have all the technologies available for whatever the patient um, needs in that procedure. I, feel, I joked that I need to have a, an alarm because I'm going to ask my COVID question, but what, what impact, what, what did you learn from selling metal devices over the past year when, when COVID shut many things down and, and how did it impact you directly? I mentioned your financial results for the first quarter, so you clearly figured something out, but did it, did it hamper your sales at all? Were you hard, did you have a hard time getting people into hospitals to, to help physicians? Yeah, so no question. I mean, you know, look, the COVID pandemic was very, very challenging for everybody, us included. It was really difficult to forecast what was going to happen. And I remember in one meeting, I, I said to Mike, I'm like, I can't do it. <laughs> I, you know, it's like, I give you my best shot, but like, I just don't know. And that was right. really uncomfortable. Sure. And I actually predicted that our business would go down significantly more than it, than it did. Still declined uh, pretty significantly in, in uh, Q2 of last year. Uh, we climbed out of it much faster than I predicted. And we sort of accelerated growth from Q2 to Q3 to Q4 to Q1. And I attribute that to a couple of things. I think first and foremost is what I mentioned about elective procedures. A lot mm-hmm. of the peripheral procedures are really needed and they are critical for patient health. Things like critical limb ischemia, pulmonary embolism treatment, deep vein thrombosis, a lot of these procedures needed to get done. And so they came back a lot quicker than I thought. That, that's probably the first thing. And the, the second thing I'll say is just the importance of really, really listening to the customer. You know, I always say that God gave us two ears and one mouth for a reason. And mm-hmm. he meant for us to use them in that proportion. And it was a very humbling time, you know, to be a part of a business where you're just not really sure what's going to happen tomorrow, let alone over the next few quarters and years. Because if you remember, things were moving so fast. And what was true today, you know, may not be true tomorrow. Um, And there was a lot of information that was just moving around. And so I think you know, what worked for us is just trying to listen intently to what our customers' needs were. And if they wanted us and needed us to support them in a procedure, whether that was virtually, because we developed very quickly a lot of new digital capabilities, you know, we did that. Mm -hmm. Um, And if they didn't want us there or they wanted us to, you know, sort of stay away and come back later, you know, we, we did that. And we also tried to just be very empathetic and let our customers know that we're here for you. We empathize with what you're going through because many of them were on the front lines. I remember talking to some of our customers in, in New York City in April, and they were scared and you know, still sure. had to do a lot of these procedures. And so just letting them know we had their back, you know, we were there to support them in any way that we could, even if it was just listening and empathizing. I think at the end of the day, you know, that 
that that bode well, you know, just for the industry uh, to to you know have our customers realize that the medical device industry was there to help our customers get through this challenging time. Are you doing anything today that you that you're doing differently than you did prior to the lockdown? Uh, what lessons sort of were learned during this and and maybe adopted as as permanent part of your your way of doing things? Yeah, I think the digital capabilities is the obvious answer. You know, many companies were working hard at building new capabilities and bringing more virtual uh, technologies to bear. And, you know, I've heard somebody say, like, you know, we brought the future forward, like by a number of years. So we did five years of digital sort of capability building in one. And that's Mm -hmm. true, I think, for Boston Scientific. You know, we do a lot of Zoom uh, meetings. We try and support our customers and administrators in in a digital way, you know, have sort of a hybrid approach between reps, you know, on the ground and in the the labs with supporting them them digitally. And, And, you know, and the supply chain, making sure that we have all the right products there at the right time to support what our customers' needs are has been really important because I think a lot of companies have had challenges with the supply chain. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, our our supply chain team and ops team has been working overtime to really, you know, ensure continuity of supply so we can support our customers. Final question. Uh, you, you mentioned up top sort of the uh, the catch-all element of, of the the term or, or the industry name, peripheral interventions. I'm curious as to how you sort of see this business growing into sort of what fields, how it may change over the next five to 10 years. And if you could, would you find a way to rebrand it? Yeah. <laughs> so it's not, and, and give it maybe the, the let, make it less peripheral and more central, which as you noted, it's, it's, it's critical and crucial. It's not on the periphery at all. Yeah. It's, it's, they're all elements of important elements of our body. Yeah. Maybe we shouldn't call it peripheral. Maybe we should call it like central or, you know, it's everything. <laughs> but uh, exactly. Yeah. You know, I am, I am just so optimistic about the role of medical technology to help patients and to take costs out of the healthcare system. There is so much room to innovate, especially in peripheral, where, you know, it's, it's sort of like, analogous to where cardiology was like 10 and 20 years ago. And if you think about how far cardiology has come, um, I think that's what's going to happen in peripheral. There still are over 200,000 amputations every year in the U.S. and Western Europe alone due to peripheral vascular disease. And those amputations can be avoided. And once a patient has an amputation, their life expectancy goes down dramatically. It's something like 50% at five years. So the impact of an amputation is is just horrible. Um, And we can open up these vessels now. So I'm optimistic about new technologies to help patients avoid amputations. I'm optimistic about uh, new interventional ways to treat cancer. And the combination of immuno-oncology agents with an interventional device, so like a combo of chemo plus interventional. And Mm -hmm. I think we can get sort of like enhanced results by that combination. And so we're looking at, you know, studying ways to do exactly that and then treating more cancers around the body, more solid tumors, not just the liver, but in other parts of the body, be it, you know, lung, 
uh, kidney, brain cancer, prostate cancer, pancreatic cancer, which has horrible mortality rate. So I think there's a lot of room to innovate for interventional medicine outside of the cancers we treat today. And then expanding geographically to bring these uh, treatments to new geographies where they don't have access to the care that we have in many of the Western countries. And then finally, blood clots. You know, blood clots mm-hmm. alone causes a significant mortality and morbidity, morbidity and time in the hospital. In fact, pulmonary embolism is the leading cause of death of in-hospital mortality. So again, there's just so much room to innovate in all of these different Mm -hmm. disease states that um, I think you'll see these therapies go to help more patients around the world and at the same time make the healthcare system more cost-effective. And I can't think of a better way to spend time in a career than working on things that do exactly that. Certainly is uh, our years well spent. Jeff, I appreciate your thoughts and I appreciate you joining us on the podcast. Thanks, Tom. Great to be with you. Be well. All right. Well, it was great to have Jeff Mervis on the podcast and to hear from Boston Scientific Now. Chris Newmarker is the time where we plead for followers on social media. Brian, you are our visiting visiting team why don't you go first where can folks find you on linkedin and twitter i'm on linkedin uh brian buds is pretty easy to find me not on twitter wow not on twitter at all i forgot about that i commend you sir that's great and, and brian buns is spelled <laughs> with a b-u-n-t-z Sorry. excellent all right chris newmarker you are on twitter where i am on twitter at newmarker just like a new marker and you can find me uh on on linkedin as well and uh, always, always uh, happy to talk to people hear uh, feedback new ideas and I'm on Twitter as well. Chris and I always talk about Brian Bunce since we know, we know he's not on there. You can find me at MedTechTom, and uh, I'm on LinkedIn as well, Tom Salemi. All right, well, that is a wrap. Thanks again for joining us on this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Once again, if you enjoyed it, please share it with friends and colleagues. And of course, please do subscribe on Google, Amazon, Apple, Spotify, every place you can find a podcast. You can find us there, and you'll get sent episodes directly sent to your listening device. Thanks again for for tuning in. Tune in next week. We'll have another great episode of the Device Talks weekly podcast waiting for you. Take care. Get vaccinated soon.